following sermon was delivered on June 6th of 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Mr. Zachary Groff delivered this sermon entitled The Glory of True Christianity on Revelation 3, 14-22. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. As we come to the end of the series on the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, I want to remind you of one very basic fact, and that is we have seen all kinds of churches. It's not without reason that God has given us seven letters to seven churches. Throughout the history of the church, though there has been much disagreement about how each of these churches represents the church, yet there is consensus among all interpreters of Scripture, as far as I can tell, that these churches, when taken together, represent the church entirely, uh, cumulatively, comprehensively in all ages. Among these seven churches, there have been expressions of great faithfulness, Philadelphia and Smyrna, and then also of great compromise, Thyatira, Ephesus, Pergamum, Sardis. And today, we come to perhaps the wealthiest church and the most famous of these churches, and yet the most spiritually pathetic church of the bunch. Christ, who at every turn has brought something good out of each church in his remarks, finds nothing Nothing worthy of commendation in Laodicea. More than any of the others, this church, the church in Laodicea, is an example of what Antioch Presbyterian Church should avoid with all our might, isn't it? We don't want to be like Laodicea. We want to be like Philadelphia. We want to be like Smyrna. Hey, give us at least Ephesus in their orthodoxy. But we don't want to be like Laodicea. We see from Christ's address in Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22, which I just read, it seems as though this church uniquely has abandoned the glory of true Christianity. They have abandoned the glory of true Christianity. Why do I say that? Because it seems as though they have grown indifferent to Christ and to His salvation, to His gospel having once began as a thriving church plant out of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, no less. The church in Laodicea has become what Christ says, lukewarm. They've become lukewarm. But, but, as perilous as the situation may be, as dire as the situation may have become for this church, all hope is not lost. What our passage shows us tonight is that while God in Christ condemns lukewarm Christianity, yet he loves to save lukewarm Christians. While God in Christ condemns lukewarm Christianity, he loves to save lukewarm Christians. What a message of hope. And we'll divide our text under three headings then as we, as we consider this glorious truth of true Christianity. First, Christ the judge of lukewarm Christianity, presented to us in verse 14. And then second, Christ's counsel to lukewarm Christians. That's the body of the letter from verses 15 to 20. And then finally, Christ's glorious grace for repentant 
Christians in verses 21 and 22, a picture of what is held forth to them if they would be zealous and repent. So first, let's consider together Christ the judge of lukewarm Christianity. We mustn't gloss over this. This is critical for our understanding of the whole letter. For in these, in these descriptions of himself, in each letter, just to remind you, I know I've mentioned it before, in each of these descriptions to each of the seven churches, Christ kind of tips his hand a little bit. He, he gives them an idea of where it is he's going to be going with them. And so it's important to pay attention to this. And as we read this description, very simply, we see to whom the judgment comes, and I'll give you some background about Laodicea, but then also from whom the judgment comes. To whom Laodicea, but then from whom, how Christ describes himself as the judge of lukewarm Christianity. First, to whom the judgment comes. Laodicea as a city was, and I hesitate to say this because it, it might be a bit of a crass analogy, but it's a lot like America. In, a, in many ways. It's a wealthy city, but more than that, the American ethos, our culture, for better or for worse, and I think there's pros and cons to this, the American ethos is that pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get to work, and go make a name for yourself. The American dream, get the house, the white picket fence, the great frontier, manifest destiny, from sea to shining sea. And this has been knit into the fabric of our culture at the very least, if not in fact our history, of being self-sufficient, self-reliant, throwing off the, um, the strictures of the old world and forging a path for whatever motivation seems to suit our fancy. That's the American ethos and the Laodicean ethos, and I hope I'm not projecting here, is very similar. And it flows out of their history. You know, several of these cities have been destroyed by cataclysmic earthquakes in Asia Minor in the first century, and Laodicea was no exception. Along with Colossae and Philadelphia and, and other cities in the nearby vicinity, in about AD 64, Laodicea was, for all intents and purposes, uh, broken down into rubble by an earthquake. But unlike Philadelphia, and unlike uh, certain other cities which received aid from either neighboring kings or even imperial Rome, Laodicea picked itself up by its bootstraps. You see, the wealthy merchants of Laodicea, who were wealthy in banking and in textiles, and wool in particular, and then also in medicine for the eyes, all of those things will come back, they banded together and they rebuilt their city themselves. So culturally, the city itself, before we even get to the church, is one that historically speaking, we can say with some confidence, is very self-sufficient. Self-reliant. Does that ring any bell? Again, America prides itself on self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Secondly now, zoning in a little, or zooming in a bit more to the church in Laodicea, what do we know about her? Well, as I intimated in the introduction or suggested, this church was founded by a man, an apostle, a missionary, no less famous and prestigious and effective in his ministry than the apostle Paul if not directly founded, so to speak. It's at least one that was uh, very much of concern to Paul. He took a unique interest in the church in Laodicea. We could say that with confidence, because in his letter to the church in Colossae, to the epistle to the Colossians, Paul mentions Laodicea once, twice, three times a church that he's concerned with. He even mentions the name, I think, if the grammar holds up, 
the name of the person who hosted the church in his home, Nymphos. And so this church was, was one that was very precious to Paul, but beyond that, his message to this church is very interesting in light of what we read about Christ's um, warning to them in Revelation 3. In Colossians 2, verses, uh, starting at verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ in Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. And he goes on and continues. That message to Colossae is just as much a message to Laodicea. And note the emphasis on riches and wealth in Christ, in understanding Christ, in the assurance of His love for Christ. Isn't this why we have a declaration of pardon or an assurance of pardon each service here? It's because this is of great benefit to you, brothers and sisters. It's a great benefit to all of us and to the church to be reminded of the interest we have in Christ. Not the paltry interest of a savings account, no. The great interest of salvation, full and free in Jesus. And these uh, Laodiceans, they knew that. They had that. There's more I could say from church history, but I'll, I'll end it there. That this church, ministered to by Paul, was rich in understanding. Are we in a similar situation to that of this church? We live in a culture that screams self-reliance and self-sufficiency. Don't turn to anyone to help. Lean on yourself. Such goes the American way of life. But then also, as the church in America... We have the resources at our disposal that are unheard of in the history of the world. I went on a website recently um, for one, uh, an organization that has a theological journal. I was doing some research, not on this passage, but on another passage. And 30,000 free resources. We're talking about academic articles, translations, and all of these things. And that was just one organization with one website. And I can think off the top of my head of at least a dozen others that I, as, a, as a, an aspiring minister, can go to for help in understanding Christ and His salvation. And these are resources open to each of you. I mean, just the very fact that we each have a Bible to call our own and to open up before us, we are rich in understanding so the situation of the church in Laodicea, to whom the judgment comes against lukewarm Christianity, it's not that far off from our own. Might we give heed, therefore, to what Christ has to say to them? And who is this Christ from whom the judgment comes? He's described for us here in verse 14. Look at it with me. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This unified title, the Amen, faithful and true witness, beginning of the creation of God. It's really one title. It's drawn from the only other place in Scripture where the word Amen is used as a title. That's Isaiah 65, verse 15. I'll read it for you because it's uh, significant enough to do that. Isaiah 65, 15. You will leave your name 
for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. That is, the God of Amen. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of Amen, or truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. That's Isaiah 65, 16. In this passage, which I actually linked to my last sermon on Hebrews 12, 1-3, it's a passage that anticipates and immediately precedes a promise from God. A promise of new creation and new life of redemption, of deliverance, even from exile in Isaiah's case. But we understand deliverance from darkness and into light. And so when we move on and we see the rest of the title, this makes perfect sense that, uh, that Christ would be referencing Isaiah 65 here, uh, lines up perfectly with what he says about himself, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He is faithful and true speaking of his, uh, not just his genuineness, but really of his divinity. And so when he says the beginning of the creation of God, we understand that in light of what he's just said about himself, um, suggesting to us that he's divine. And we must throw off any suggestion that here Jesus is calling himself a creature, beginning of the creation of God. John 1, 3, this... Um, how this works out is described for us in, I think, plain and familiar language. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Some theologians call this, this the efficient cause of creation as a description of Christ. When we understand Him as the beginning of creation, we're just saying that everything exists because He made it happen. God the Father working through Christ the Son to bring all things into existence. He is the cause of creation. He's the source or origin of creation. But I just said that based on Isaiah 65, we're talking not so much about initial physical creation, the birds and the bees and the bubblegum trees, but we're talking about the new creation, salvation in Christ Jesus, redemption, deliverance from darkness into light. And children, you understand this, because I know your parents are teaching you well, and that's not just patting myself on the back. There are other kids here. Who saves you? Who saves you? Jesus Christ saves you. Or Jesus saves me. His name means salvation. That's why He was named that. And so He is the origin and source, not just of creation writ large, but also of our own uh, new creation, our, our being in God. And going back to the letter to the church in Colossae, or Colossae in uh, chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 15, this is made even clearer to us again by Paul, and this letter would have been read to the church in Laodicea. He says, He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Speaking of His being at the top, His ruling over all creation. He's also the head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn 
from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And so we see here then that all those who would say that Christ is not God are in fact patently wrong. When we say he's the beginning of creation, we mean he is the first to be brought back from the dead. And this, my friends, is at the heart of the glory of true Christianity, is the proclamation of Christ's resurrection. And he's putting this before this church, which he's coming to rebuke for their lack of zeal. He's putting his resurrection before them, that which is more exciting than anything else, perhaps, in the Christian message. Now this Jesus, this Amen, the beginning of the creation of God, is faithful and true. And what we find out about the church is that it failed to reflect him. Failed to imitate him. This, this church was faithless and in many ways false in that it has failed to proclaim the excellencies and the truth of God. There's no vitality in Laodicea. Christ came to Sardis and said, you have a name for being alive, but you are dead. But then he says, but there are some of you who are alive. In Laodicea, again, there is no commendation even of individuals in that church. So Christ the judge is coming. But he enters the courtroom in this letter in a surprising way. Not as judge, but as counselor to this church in Laodicea. Let's look at verses 15 to 20 to move into our second heading, Christ's counsel to the lukewarm Christians. He outlines for them their problem, and then he gives them their solution. First, their problem in verses 15 and 16. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will, literally, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. So he, he sets forth their problem by an image, a metaphor. He says they're lukewarm. Children, after you're playing outside on a hot day and you run inside, what kind of water do you want to drink? You want to drink hot water? No. You want to drink kind of lukewarm water? No. You want to take a glass of ice-cold water and just pour it down your mouth and down your throat as fast as you can. That water is useful to you. It brings refreshment. It, it wakes you up. It cools you down. Well, likewise, lukewarm water here is useless. It's useless to Christ. It's useless for witnessing to Christ's salvation. But zeal... Zeal in religion, not indifference, but excitement about the resurrection and earnestness and witnessing to Christ and His salvation. That is very useful. That's very useful in witnessing for Christ. Hot and cold water is useful. Lukewarm water is useless. How useless is lukewarm water? Well, I will turn to our friends, the Westminster Divines, Westminster Larger Catechism 105 tells us how serious lukewarmness is as a problem because of how useless it is in religion and in faith. When they're discussing the sins forbidden in the first commandment, it's on page 952 in your hymnal, but you don't have to turn there. When discussing the sins forbidden in the first commandment, one of the things that they cite here is lukewarmness. Using unlawful means in religion and trusting in lawful means rather than trusting in God. Carnal delights and joys. Corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal. 
shooting off in the wrong direction, but then also lukewarmness and deadness in the things of God. That's an infraction. It breaks the first commandment. It's equal to idolatry. In fact, it's an expression of idolatry. Indeed, that's how serious this problem is. The church is standing on the precipice here in Laodicea. On the precipice of being rejected by God and pushed out. But yet, they are not without hope. It says in our text, if you're using the New American Standard, I will spit you out of my mouth. But literally what it's saying is, I am about to. Which means there's a delay here. There's some hope. There's a window of time now in which they can repent. The church is about to be rejected, but it's not without hope. And so when Christ comes here in this letter, He comes not as judge, but rather He comes as counselor to them. And what is the solution He proposes? He restates the problem first in verse 17. He says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, or literally the wretched one and the miserable and poor and blind and naked one, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. He gives them a picture of their want and their need that would be easily relatable to them. They're familiar with wealthy people. They have a thriving banking industry. They're familiar with, with the most glorious white wool garments in all the ancient world because that's what they're famous for. And they're familiar with eye salve and what it means to be blind but yet curable because they had a great medical system there in Laodicea, which manufactured balm to address these things. So Christ appeals to this church using three images that they would know, poor, uh, naked, and blind. And then he gives them a solution in the next verse for what to do about this. He says, I advise you, I counsel you now to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This threefold problem is then given a threefold solution, but it's a solution from God. It's not a solution from them. That's the key here. He's telling them, there's nothing you can do on your own to save yourself. Rather, turn back and buy from me. And what do we know about buying from God? That there's no money you can bring to pay for the goods He offers. There's no contribution you can make to the offering plate for salvation. There's, there's no sacrifice you can make. What does Isaiah 55 say? Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. We run around in this country as a church seeking after every little solution, spending untold thousands and millions of dollars on glossy papers and pamphlets, on mediation services when we can't figure out how to deal with people, on all kinds of schemes for growing the church, seeking for vitality that we've lost. And Christ says, no, turn to me. I have all that you need. I have riches. I have clothing. 
I have eye balm for you. Everything you need is found in Christ Jesus. That's the message he's bringing to this self-reliant, self-sufficient, lukewarm church. He says, you may think you've arrived. You may think you're rich. And yet, my beloved one, you have need of your Savior. Come, will you not turn back to me? He makes this plea to them. The church cannot save itself, but God Himself loves, disciplines, and saves. And what's the picture given in our passage for that love, that reproof, that salvation? He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to or toward or before him and will dine with him and he with me. Remember, this message is not to unbelievers. Yes, it's true. We can go to unbelievers and we can say, hear the voice of Christ calling you to faith and repentance. But this message, his knocking on the door, he's knocking on the church door. He's coming into the church. He's speaking to the angel of the church in Laodicea, to either their appointed minister or their guardian angel or whatever. And he's saying, let me in that I might dine with you, that I might share a meal with you, that I might commune with you. And this is the solution to their problem. It's not a solution of needing new methods or new teaching or compromise with the world. No, it's a solution of needing Christ in His presence. The presence pictured for us even tonight in the bread and the cup. Keep that in mind as we observe the supper this evening. That when we do so, we're admitting that we need Jesus Christ in His church, with His people, we nourish on Him. He gives us the food and the drink that we cannot buy with our money, but rather that He freely offers to us by coming and meeting with us. Blessed be His name. And so setting aside our self-reliance and our self-sufficiency, we too can be zealous for God's grace because this is free. I'll tell you what, if I were to go out and buy a car at full price, I'm probably not going to go and tell anybody about that. They might see my car and say, oh, where'd you get it? i say, oh, I bought that the other day. Now, if I go to a, a car lot and I get a car at a really good price, I might say, hey, I got this great deal. The guy was really up front and, and straight up with me. He gave me a great deal on a car. But if Dr. Piper called me one day and I went to his house and sitting in his driveway was a car I didn't recognize, but that kind of suited my fancy. And he said, son, come here. These keys are for you. I'm giving you that car out in the driveway. I thought you would like it, and I want to give it to you as a gift. You better believe I'm going to tell everybody about that. I'm going to be zealous to tell everyone how great a guy Joey Piper is. He gave me a car. What a paltry gift compared to what Christ offers to us. He gives us salvation. He gives us new life. He promises resurrection. And He's given us the keys in His own resurrection, letting us know that this is going to be ours. Is there anything for which we should be more zealous and more excited? No, not at all. This is the hope, the glory of true Christianity. And so we see in verses 21 and 22 then, a very brief picture, but poignant picture, of Christ's glorious grace for repentant Sinners. 
We see a promise of salvation in verse 21, and then we see the condition of salvation in verse 22. First, the promise. Here he says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So this verse draws heavily on Old Testament background that's important to flesh out very quickly for you. First, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make my enemies a footstool for your feet. We see the supremacy of Christ. But then Daniel fleshes this out even more in what might be the theme verse of the book of Revelation. And that's in Daniel chapter 7, the description of the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7, verse 9. We read, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. And what Christ is telling the church in Laodicea about the destiny of all those who would repent and be zealous for Him and His salvation is that when those books are opened, they'll be seated with Him on the throne, secure in being saved, secure in their salvation. They won't be on the other side to be judged and condemned. That this terrifying picture will for them be a great comfort, a picture of blessedness and union with God. And to whom does this promise come? This promise of sharing in glory. It comes to the wretched one, the miserable one, the poor, blind, and naked one. Is that you? Are you wretched and poor and blind and naked on your own, utterly insufficient to save yourself? The glory of true Christianity is the goodness of this message that Christ has made a place for you. Repent and believe in the Gospel. This is the glory of true Christianity that the humble will be exalted, that the poor will be made rich, the naked will be clothed, their shame will be hidden, and the blind will be given eyes to see. This is what we pray for for our neighbors and our friends, for our children, for all those with whom we come into contact, that God would make known this glorious message to them and they would receive it by faith. And that brings me then to the condition of this salvation. Look at verse 22, the verse that ends each of these letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, similar promises were made to each church. To Ephesus, was made the promise of access to the tree of life if they would hear, if they would overcome. To Smyrna, they were promised not to be hurt by the second death, though they were martyred in this life. To him who hears. To Pergamum, a new name, a white stone, hidden manna. To Thyatira, given the morning star. To Sardis, given white garments of Christ's righteousness, His name to ever be um, inscribed in the book of life, never to be blotted out, to be confessed before the Father and holy angels, to Philadelphia, 
to be a pillar in the inner sanctuary of God, immovable forever and ever. And now to Laodicea, this promise of being seated on God's throne, it comes with the condition, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's interesting about this language, coming right after a promise, is typically in the Gospels, in Christ's ministry, if you go look at where he says this, and later on in Revelation, it comes in the context of judgment. That Christ says this after giving a parable. And a parable of the condemnation of those who reject Him and the acceptance of those who accept Him. And it comes later on um, in a description of, of Christ coming back to judge. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But here, the emphasis is on mercy and grace. A message of salvation, a message of deliverance, a message of sharing in the glory of God. What is of judgment to the world comes to the church as grace and mercy. Do you hear this as grace and mercy this evening? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so the condition of this salvation, there is but one, is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Repentance and renewal, what we're discussing this evening, the revitalization of zeal in our lives as Christians and in the church, it's that which God works in us at the table. It's that which is pictured for us at the table. In fact, this is but a foretaste of what Christ will bring us into when He comes again, into the wedding supper of the Lamb. And the church in Laodicea is being reminded of that when He says, Heed my voice, open to me, that I might come in and dine with you. So the question I pose at the end of this series on the seven letters to the churches is what kind of church will Antioch Presbyterian Church be? What kind of church will we become in the months ahead? Will we be zealous? Or will we be indifferent and lukewarm? Will we be soiled by faithlessness like Thyatira and Ephesus and Sardis? Or will we be steadfast in the faith once for all delivered to the saints like Philadelphia and Smyrna? Let us not be lukewarm. And just to give you an idea of the hope and how this has worked out in history, this church in Laodicea, as perilous as their situation was, we know from church history, remained a true church for centuries after this. Perhaps there was repentance upon hearing this letter. In fact, uh, the canon, uh, there's a council in Laodicea in the 4th century where the canon is reaffirmed and recognized. It's an important location in the history of the church. And yet today, there's nothing but rubble and ruin in what is or was Laodicea. So while God in Christ condemns lukewarm Christianity, brothers and sisters, He loves to save lukewarm Christians. Christ, the judge of lukewarm Christianity, came as counselor to these lukewarm Christians in order to make known to them His glorious grace for repentant Christians. And as Christ our King executes His royal power in correcting His church, let us heed His counsel that He gives here to the church in Laodicea and by extension to us. We too are called to repentance when we sin against each other, our brothers and our sisters, our husbands and our wives, our children, our neighbors, our friends. 
He too calls us to renewal. When we've grown cold and indifferent, perhaps lukewarm to Him. When we see our Bibles and we're not sparked with excitement to open them up and to hear and to read of Christ, but rather see a chore laid before us. When we schedule an engagement to go out into the highways and byways and to tell our neighbors about Christ, and yeah, we go, but we think, I don't really feel like doing this. I wish I was just sitting at home. Guilty. Let us remember Christ's message here. Repent and be zealous. Have faith in the preaching of His Word. The church is called to the table, even now, even this evening, to revel, not to march like in a funeral procession, but to revel as zealots in the resurrection and the life of God in Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.